Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. I think there's clinical equipoise about which oral opioid works better. There's, I think, one of my primary jobs in the emergency department is to educate families and parents. He was found apneic in their home. Paramedics were called, and he was unsuccessfully resuscitated. We're really on the cusp of a paradigm shift. Pain is the most common reason for seeking health care. It accounts for 80% of ED visits. In fact, the WHO has declared that optimal pain treatment is a human right. As has been shown in multiple ED-based studies, pediatric pain is all too often underestimated and undertreated. Why does this matter? Underestimating and undertreating pediatric pain may not only have short-term detrimental effects, but lifelong detrimental effects, not to mention screaming miserable children disturbing other patients in your ED and complaints to the hospital from parents. Whether it's venipuncture, laceration repair, belly pain, or reduction of a fracture, we need to have the skills and knowledge to optimize efficient and effective pain management in all the kids we see in the ED. So without further ado, it's my pleasure and honor to introduce one of the most prominent North American researchers and experts in emergency pediatric pain management, Dr. Samina Ali, and not only the chief of McMaster Children's ED, but the head of the division of pediatric EM at McMaster University, Dr. Anthony Croco. Welcome, Dr. Ali. Thank you very much. And welcome, Dr. Croco. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Great. So, Everyone listened to Dr. Croco's best case ever, which was totally awesome, so they're familiar with who he is. Dr. Ali is new to EM cases. Dr. Ali, could you just give us a little background of your professional activities in pediatric emergency medicine? Sure. Um, I am a pediatric emergency physician at the Stollery Children's Hospital, and I've practiced there since uh, 2001 um, after doing a general pediatrics residency and uh, an emer- pediatric emergency medicine fellowship uh, at McGill. And um, about seven or eight years ago, I started to get really interested in pediatric pain um, as an untreated problem within our emergency departments and then pursued um, a research program in that. Let's jump right into the first case. Case number one, a five-year-old boy presents to your ED with a 24-hour of periumbilical abdominal pain, vomiting, and low-grade fever. At triage, he was given ibuprofen, 10 milligrams per kilogram PO, for the pain. On exam, he nonetheless appears to be in significant amount of pain, and he's tender in the right lower quadrant with rebound and guarding. Testicles are non-tender, and there's no scrotal swelling. You tell yourself, wow. I haven't seen a classic case of appendicitis in a five-year-old in a long time. This is a slam dunk. You decide to make the patient MPO, order an IV, on Dancitron for vomiting, and organize an ultrasound to confirm your suspicion for appendicitis. So let's just talk generally, briefly speaking. Dr. Ali, how would you approach the assessment and treatment of pain in this child from the time that they hit the door of the ED to the time that they go up to the OR for their appendectomy? If the child's comfortable enough to get a history and physical, do that first if you can. Um, then order, any, order your meds before they're getting any tests or consultations. But if they're very uncomfortable, as they often can be, um, I would get a basic history to make sure I'm safe to give the medications and then start thinking about what I would want to give. If we were in the mild to moderate pain category, I will on occasion give a single oral dose before making them NPO. But if they're quite uncomfortable, I'd probably be thinking about intravenous pain medications if vascular access was quick to establish. The other thing that I think is really important not to forget is these are children, and the use of things like distraction and explanation can go a long way. So giving them an iPad, having a conversation with them um, can really help settle them down while you're getting uh, things sorted out for them. Okay, so we'll get into all the distraction techniques and specific medication, IV medications, PO medications, intranasal medications, IM medications. Dr. Croco, what's your take? Generally, how would you approach this patient? One of my priorities first is to make sure the child is stable, uh, but then quickly get on top of their pain. With these kids, we use a lot of narcotics, so IV morphine is usually my go-to medication for these children. And I know that there's been some discussion previously about the use of narcotics in children with appendicitis and whether that's going to mask the signs of appendicitis for any clinicians down the line, for example, the surgeons. Uh, and I think that's been debunked quite aggressively in the, in the literature. 
Um, so we use IV morphine fairly early on to get better management of their pain. So we've got our case of a query appendicitis here. Let's just sort of start from the beginning and talk a little bit about the background of why pain management is important. Dr. Ali, why is effective ED pain management in children important? Or another way to ask the question is, what are the consequences of untreated pain in children? These children have short and long-term detrimental effects. So there's actually ample literature that now says that there are short-term effects. So it takes longer to complete procedures with them. So our time as clinicians is precious. So if you want to be fully selfish and just talk about us, it actually makes it harder for us to get our job done. If you want to talk from an administrator point of view, Dr. Cargo, it it extends their length of stay. So it actually makes them stay in your emergency department longer or even inpatients longer. So let me get this straight. So if you practice effective pain management, that will actually decrease the length of stay of the kid rather than just kind of going in there, doing what you need to do and getting out. Absolutely. This is not just motherhood and apple pie and being nice. This is hard science with administrative facts and dollars behind it. Um, You actually get children better faster. They're more satisfied. They get home sooner. They heal faster. And of course, they have less emotional trauma and suffering. And that's just short term. Then there's also long term. So if we don't treat their pain, we know from the beautiful neonatal literature that's been done around this, that infant pain processing can actually change their neurologic patterns can actually change if we don't treat their pain effectively. And then later on as adults or older children actually avoid uh, medical care or have a fear beyond what you would expect for healthcare evaluations because they're afraid of us now. Well, so one bad experience as an infant or a toddler, let's say, can actually affect the way they perceive pain later in life? Absolutely. As an administrator, I can tell you I feel the number of the complaints that come through our division from parents and families of kids that were seen in our department. Uh, And one of the big things that we see are people concerned that their children's pain was not adequately identified, not adequately managed. And so I think this is a really important point. Now that we've driven home why this is all important, let's talk about how to assess for pain. You know, I think this is something that perhaps we don't take enough time to in a busy emergency department. We're running around. We just need to see the patients and get the patients through. We're going through our clinical decision-making algorithms, and we're trying to figure out what to do with these kids, and we don't take the time sometimes to do a proper assessment. What's out there in terms of the literature that tells us what the most effective ways of assessing how much pain a child is in? So there are tools that exist that are age-specific. So uh, depending on the age of the patient in front of you, you might use a different tool. The most challenging group probably, Anton, that we encounter are the nonverbal children and the infants. Um, So perhaps I'll start with the older children and work backwards if that's all right. So for the oldest of children, um, so say eight years, six to eight years and up, it's the visual analog scale, which for um, any who aren't, or if you're not familiar with it, it's the recommended tool for both clinical and research practice for this age group. But one of the challenges is sometimes as busy emergency doctors, we forget to have it in our pocket or we don't have it on us. But if you find yourself in a pinch, most children eight and up, can do a numerical scale. So if you anchor it with zero means no pain and 10 means the worst pain imaginable, they're able to give you a number that you can use. Uh, For our little uh, preschool to early school age, so four to eight years old, for sure, the tool that is validated is the faces pain scale revised. And that one is the uh, six faces tool where the child points to which face they feel correlates best with their feelings. um, And you use that. A lot of people confuse it with the Wong Baker. And I want to just point out that the Wong Baker is really cute. It's got the smiley cartoony faces, but it shows different emotions. It shows crying as the worst pain. And many pain gurus, if you will, caution against using Wong Baker because it has a lot of cultural implications in there. So in certain cultures, people don't express pain with tears. And I think one of the best stories I have, if you'll indulge me from my clinical years, at McGill was um, the Inuit population that would come down from up north. When a child had a perforated appendicitis, and this happened more than once to me, I would push on their belly and they would wrinkle their nose. That's all they'd do. And we'd look at each other and say, oh crud, this kid has a perforated appy. We need to get them to the OR right away. And that was their full expression of 10 on 10 pain, as opposed to other cultures where uh, even minor pain might have very obvious expression. So the Wong Baker is a little bit tricky that way. So the faces is much more culturally neutral. 
And then for our teeny tinies, we tend to use the, the flax scale mostly, I think, in North America. There's also a nips scale, but flax seems to get the most uh, traction. Um, it's faces, legs, arms, cry, and consolability. You get a maximum score of 10, and you decide that one. You probably need the tool with you just to remember those five points. So it's a little bit trickier to use. Many of our nurses do carry them and seem to be comfortable using it. Physicians, I find, use flack less. Uh, they will probably rely on parental proxy. Okay, so this is something that can be done by nurses at triage even or once they're in the emergency department assessed by nurses um, or by the physicians. I imagine that maybe having these scales on the, on the charts already might be useful. We'll definitely have them on the website for people to see. It's interesting that you brought up the cultural differences um, I remember when my, my father-in-law very politely excused himself from the Christmas dinner table. And an hour and a half later, I was wondering where he still was. And I went down to the basement and he was curled up in a ball in fetal position. And I asked him what was wrong. And he said, oh, nothing. And he had a bowel obstruction. So yes, absolutely. There's cultural differences. Some people are stoic. Some people are not. And my question actually then leads to, are these scales like the faces pain scale, are they, are they validated across different cultural groups? Most of the validation of pain scales that I've seen um, has happened mostly in North America and some in Europe, but they've definitely looked at it across Hispanic and uh, African American populations. Okay, great. So this is something that's definitely worth using then uh, in the emergency department. Now, one thing that uh, I was taught when I was a medical student was that usually if someone's really tachycardic for no other reason and they seem to be in pain, then that means they're probably in more pain if they're really tachycardic. And if they're not tachycardic, then they're probably not in that much pain. Dr. Crocco, can vital signs help us determine how much pain a child is suffering from? So it's a good question, and I think that the old adage that uh, higher heart rate means more pain is really a bit of a myth. Uh, and I think more important is to look at a number of different factors. I think first is, if you think it would hurt for you to have whatever's going on that the child is, is experiencing, it probably hurts for the child too. So you know, if a child has a broken arm, if I had a broken arm, I imagine that would hurt. And so no matter what my heart rate is, and I would hope my healthy heart is going to beat at 60 a minute, I would still be experiencing pain. And so I think we can fool ourselves a little bit with normal vital signs in thinking the child's not experiencing pain. It certainly can explain a higher heart rate, but the correlation is not adequate enough for us to be able to say, oh, okay, we're just going to use that as our only measure of a child's pain. I think that's a fair assessment. It would be similar to saying looking at a child's heart rate and saying if their heart rate is up, that must mean they have a fever. Um, so they can sometimes travel together, but you can also um, you can also have them traveling separately. So pain and heart rate or other vital signs don't necessarily travel together. So in talking about assessment for pediatric pain, you know, we're busy emergency physicians pulling out these tools and going through the scales takes a bit of time. Why is it important to assess the, the amount of pain? You know, the, Anton, my sort of philosophy with uh, pain or any number of things is it's very difficult to manage something that you haven't measured. And so to use another example, uh, if you have a child who's dehydrated and you don't have a sense of the level of that dehydration, how is it possible to adequately manage that dehydration? The same goes for pain. If you haven't measured and, and made it important to you to know what level of pain someone is experiencing, then it's very difficult to know what intervention to participate in with that child um, and what's going to be most effective or most appropriate. And I might add to the measuring of pain is the re-measuring of pain. So once you've given a pain medication, you're not uh, scot-free and you're, you don't pat yourself on the back for being a good doctor and run away. Um, you have to go back and find out uh, what's going on uh, in reassessments. Reassessment, reassessment, reassessment. Absolutely. And rely on your team. I get the busy part. Cracking out the flax scale makes me cringe a little bit as well. But we have amazing nursing teams who, I'll be blunt, I think nursing gets a lot more airtime and traction and learning about uh, pain management and pain measurement. So lean on them and ask them to give you the score uh, to, to get that for you. So you can do it as a shared uh, responsibility. That was good. That was great, guys. Okay. Swamp team. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we were when we worked together. Yeah, we used to work together in Edmonton. So Crocodile, was... alligator. We were so the swamp, swamp shift. Team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, we had fun. (laughs) Dr. Ali, you had just mentioned how you can use teams that the nurses might be able to do the pain assessments to free up some time for the physician. Let's talk a little bit more about efficiency. There's usually a significant delay between the time that a child hits the ED door to the time they see the physician. It could be two hours, three hours, four hours, or even longer, regrettably. For a child who presents with a painful condition, what can our EDs do to ensure that the pain is treated in a timely manner? It's a very good question, Anton, and maybe I'll field this one just from an administrative standpoint. One of the things that I think an emergency department or a division of emergency medicine should do is look at pain, much like any other major problem that people are presenting with, and try and see if there's any way to improve efficiency in in, uh, identification, measurement, and management. And this can start right at triage. A patient presenting with a painful complaint at triage could have that pain identified, measured, and if you had a nurse-driven protocol at triage could have it managed at triage. So even if your wait time to see a physician is hours, that child is waiting in the emergency department, their pain is already being actively managed. Just back up there for a second. So are you saying that the nurses can give morphine or fentanyl or ketamine or... Well, we're not quite there yet, Anton. I would love to start thinking about those types of protocols. We're still at the stage of, of uh, initiating protocols for things like acetaminophen and ibuprofen, uh, which have both been shown to be very effective modalities for improving pain experience. Uh, there are other methods as well that are non-pharmacologic. And so we're lucky at McMaster Children's Hospital to have a very active child life program. And we have child life specialists in our emergency department. And one of their big roles is we're working in the waiting room to ensure that the patient experience while they're waiting for a physician, so even before you and I have seen them, is maximized in terms of comfort and minimized in terms of pain. Couldn't agree with you more. Triage, triage, triage. Triage initiated pain protocols cut down the time of waiting for pain treatment by dramatic amounts. Um, Just last year, a group out of Alberta published a medical record review of a musculoskeletal treatment that I was involved with. And uh, this group showed the average wait time, the mean wait time is two hours um, for pain treatment for a known musculoskeletal injury. So you come in, you say it hurts, and you're waiting over two hours. And if you went to the general emergency department in Edmonton, it was three hours. So really, really unacceptable delays when you know something is hurting. At the Stollery Children's Hospital here in Edmonton, where I work, and it started triage-initiated pain protocols about two years ago. And our wait times for pain medications, though we haven't formally studied it yet, anecdotally has gone down to probably 8 to 10 minutes because the nurses now can give ibuprofen or acetaminophen. There are a number of pediatric hospitals, a small number across Canada, and a large number in Australia who have now integrated intranasal fentanyl and oral opioids into their uh, triage protocols as well, making a big difference. Wow. So intranasal fentanyl at triage. We're going to be talking a little bit later about intranasal fentanyl and intranasal ketamine, which are kind of the new hot topics. Intranasal fentanyl at triage has been something that has actually started to be done now? It's starting to be done in Canada, but with physician consultation. So it's not a nurse-initiated protocol. They would pop back out and say, Dr. Krako, I've got a child that I'm really worried about, severe pain. May I give intranasal fentanyl? Dr. Krakow gives the green light and they go ahead. In uh, Australia, I think they're much more uh, aggressive with using it. So they're using in pre-hospital settings as well. Very exciting, actually, because I think this is something, and to be blunt, that we've really done a horrible job at for decades, if not much, much longer. And so I think we're really on the cusp of a, a paradigm shift. Let's say this child hasn't received any analgesics at home or at triage, and you've done your assessment. You had mentioned your brief approach to managing the pain of our child with query appendicitis at the top of the podcast. Let's talk more specifically about analgesic options. What medications would you recommend for this child with query appendicitis? I think if you're obligated to keep them NPO, um, the largest body of evidence is for intravenous opioids. There's no question there. Um, If vascular access is significantly delayed or causing a lot of difficulty in establishing it, then an intranasal opioid would be an option as a bridging measure before you get them their IV. But I can't stress enough, as we did earlier, that there's the importance to reassess every 10 minutes minimum after that initial dose of opioid because you're just figuring out how much they actually need. These children are opioid naive, many of them, and we start with smaller doses when we're not 
feeling entirely sure of what we're doing. So until we've established what their average dose they're going to need is, you need to do a couple of quick reassessments at the beginning to figure that out. What's your opioid of choice for these kids, Samina? Um, knowing that the pain is going to last because it's not um, my elbow is dislocated and when you fix it, I'm going to feel a lot better. Um, I tend to go with the ones the ones that last longer. So in, in, intravenous morphine is my go-to because generally appendicitis pain doesn't go away till the surgeon makes it better. That makes me feel better because that's what I use too. I have seen some people try and recommend things like fentanyl and my argument is always the same as what you just mentioned, which is the pain's not going to be better in a half an hour. Why use a very short-acting narcotic or opioid? Why not use something a little bit longer acting? Agreed. I think the history behind the fentanyl, Anthony, goes back to the days when we were in training. And um, out of respect for one another, we won't tell anyone how long ago that was. But we, you probably remember the days when the surgeon would come down. And I certainly remember from my training days where I was told not to give opioids because it would hinder the surgeon's examination. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt now that that is not the case. There's a number of big studies and systematic reviews that have been done since, including just last year, Dr. Punai looked at the use of intravenous opioids for undifferentiated abdominal pain. They do not get more perforations. They do not have more abscesses. Um, so the physical exam is not affected. The ability to ultrasound is not affected from other studies. We know that. So um, there's really no holdback. So I wonder if the fentanyl idea stems from a from that old idea that, okay, maybe we'll do it halfway, let's give something, but at least it'll be worn off before the surgeon gets here. That's gone the way of the dodo bird. Uh, one of my um, mentors um, who was a bit of a, and I say this endearingly, a bit of a cowboy, would say, go ahead and give them morphine, and if the surgeon's unhappy, hand them a bottle of Narcan and tell them to explain it to the family. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We're going to have some of the dosages in the written summary in the blog post, but just to give us a general idea. So average five-year-old child, what kind of dosages are we talking about for morphine for your initial dose? And then for you had mentioned reassessing every 10 minutes for repeated doses. Just give us uh, a general idea. Yeah. So I, I often start with 0.1 milligrams per kilogram for my IV morphine dose and then titrate up from there. Uh, the thing that I like about narcotics is a number of, well, not personally, I don't know what that's like, but the thing that I like about narcotics and opioids for, for children in pain is that you can always give more and you should reassess frequently, but give more, give more and more and more uh, until their pain is managed. And yeah, I think a number of folks, myself included, at a certain point, were worried. Oh, I'm going to give too much. Well, that you know, yeah. If you gave, you know, a big Costco bucket full of morphine, there's going to be respiratory depression uh, and problems. But we're not giving big, big doses like that. We're giving therapeutic doses, and you can give more. I too start with 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. I can appreciate if someone doesn't treat children very often, even that number might make them nervous. So if they start at 0.05, that's within the therapeutic recommendations. But what I would highly recommend they do is immediately within 5 to 10 minutes of that 0.05 reassess. And if you find that child's pain has gone down you know, 10 millimeters on a 100 millimeter scale, then immediately give them another dose and subsequent doses till you find the right amount for them so you can avoid the the respiratory depression complications or hypotension complications that you might be fearing. Yeah. I put, I often put these children on a respiratory monitor if I'm starting to give more morphine than I'm used to giving and just put them on an oxygen saturation monitor. So I might catch early if they're starting to desaturate as opposed to waiting for some sort of uh, horrific event. In terms of how you actually give the morphine, usually in the busy emergency department, the nurses will hang a mini bag with morphine in it. You're saying reassessing every 10 minutes would that require giving morphine IV push? Exactly. Uh, what do you recommend? Yeah, so we tend to do IV push, and it's quick. You just when the nurse goes in, walks in, confirms who they are, give pushes the medication, sees how they're doing, and walks out. It's done. Let's alter the case here a little bit. We've been talking about a pretty obvious appendicitis case. Let's say this query appendicitis patient turns out not to have appendicitis, and you've decided to send the patient home. When you're discharging kids with a painful condition from the ED, how do you counsel parents? What's your discharge pain treatment plan look like? It's a great question, Anton, because I think uh, we have to remember that the child's pain experience doesn't end the moment they leave the emergency department. And a lot of these children end up having mesenteric adenitis, which is sort of our catch-all for kids with really severe belly pain that you've proven is not appendicitis. And that hurts horrifically. 
Uh, and it doesn't stop hurting when they get home. And so for me, I, I think about what are the pharmacologic options, um, including things like acetaminophen and ibuprofen, and then thinking, is there a safe, effective option for opioid management at home? And my go-to medication in that case is to use oral morphine. Uh, I'm not sure what you do at uh, your site, Samina. Um, yeah, so I would agree. I think I use a stepwise ladder approach. So if they're going home and they have mild to moderate pain, then the choices will always be to start with acetaminophen and ibuprofen. If they have a moderate to severe pain, I will almost certainly prescribe an opioid and tell them to use it if the acetaminophen and ibuprofen are not enough. And it also depends on the diagnosis. So for instance, some of the, the gynecologic diagnoses, um, so pelvic pain due to follicular cysts, etc., seems to, anecdotally in my experience, with my patients respond better to stronger uh, non-steroidals. So I'll use naproxen, for instance, for that group. I think there is some small bodies of evidence for that, but I'm not well-versed in it to speak to it. But certainly that's what I'm doing in my practice. And then in terms of what oral opioid I might use, I probably use equal amounts of oral morphine and um, oxycodone. In Canada, you cannot get oxycodone as a suspension. So if you have a child who cannot take a pill, then you are then you're essentially your number one choice will become oral morphine by default. In the U.S., they do have something called roxaset suspension, which is a combination of acetaminophen, oxycodone. So they tend to use a lot more liquid uh, oxycodone combination product in the U.S. Here it's not an option. I think there's clinical equipoise about which oral opioid works better, um, though we definitely know oxycodone gets, has received a lot of bad press due to the intravenous drug abuse that has been associated with its use in adult populations. You had mentioned acetaminophen or ibuprofen for this child with belly pain. Let's just step back a little bit and talk in general for pediatric pain Ibuprofen versus acetaminophen. What would you say is the better choice in general for managing mild to moderate pain in children? Based on my understanding of the literature right now, as well as just the basic pharmacokinetics of these two drugs, I would say that ibuprofen would be the better choice. The literature, for partic in particular for musculoskeletal injury, is trending towards ibuprofen being the better choice. You get six to eight hours out of your ibuprofen, and you only get four to six out of your acetaminophen. So if you're trying to get that little tyke to bed with their injury and you want them to have a good night's sleep, you're probably going to get a little bit more pain relief with the ibuprofen. Um, something that I do in my personal practice, and this has been studied in adult combinations or in dentistry and ENT surgery is the combination of acetaminophen plus ibuprofen. I am a big fan of this combination, but with the caveat that it has not been formally studied in the pediatric population for emergency department use. So in our emergency at the Stollery, if we have a child, for instance, last week on shift, I had a child with um, six on 10 pain with a really sore arm. I would give them acetaminophen and ibuprofen in combination before I sent them to x-ray. But when it's time for them to go home, there's no clear evidence to suggest that that combination should be continued at home at this time. But if I have a parent who understands the dosing and is savvy and careful with it, I may counsel them that they can do that for a couple of days. But I would like to be clear that that is my personal practice. There's no literature to back that up in the ED setting at this time. My understanding from doing a previous podcast with Sarah Reed and Gina Netto was that there's a higher chance of medication error for the combination. Precisely. So I think that's what I was alluding to when I said depending on the family and depending on the on the on their understanding. So if you have a family that's very comfortable, diligent, they are documenting what they're giving at what time, we can get away with that. If the social setting that the child's going home into is a little bit less predictable or chaotic, I would be hesitant to suggest that because you're right. If you start messing up which drug you're giving at what time, you could inadvertently overdose a child with one medication or the other. Yeah, I can see from my own personal experience, I've seen one child where the parents were unfortunately not keeping track of which medication was being given, and both parents thought the other parent was giving ibuprofen and kept giving the child acetaminophen. And so the child was actually getting around Q2, Q3 hour acetaminophen and presented with uh, liver toxicity. And so I always inform parents if I'm asking them to you know, consider giving ibuprofen and acetaminophen for management of comfort at home to actually document which drug you're giving at what time um, so that if it's four in the morning, and I know my neurons don't fire at four in the morning and I'm likely to make a mistake, at four in the morning they can see on the sheet of paper what's been given recently and so that they're not uh, accidentally giving the child the wrong medication and putting the child at risk of uh, toxicity. 
And Dr. Ali, don't be shy now. I understand that you're doing a systematic review of PO medications for pediatric pain control. Can you tell us a little bit about what, uh, give us the hot off the, not even hot off the press, but what's going to be hot off the press very soon on uh, your systematic review. Dr. Sylvie Lemay, who's a colleague of mine at Université de Montréal, is leading this study, and myself and Dr. Drendel and other colleagues are collaborating uh, with her. Uh, we're doing a systematic review looking at the treatment of uh, musculoskeletal injury in the emergency department. And uh, there's almost close to a dozen studies or more that are now a part of the systematic review, and we're just in the final stages of collating that information, but it is becoming apparent that ibuprofen does seem to be an excellent choice. However, it doesn't always seem to be enough for fractures. So there's a significant number of children, close to half in many studies, for whom ibuprofen alone is not enough. And that's where we get into this, should we add acetaminophen or should we add an opioid to the treatment plan? Dr. Ali, you had mentioned that you may consider adding an opiate to ibuprofen when you're sending home a child who has moderate or more severe pain. There's this sort of fear out there amongst parents and physicians that sending home a child on opiates may be a dangerous practice. What's your take on that? There's no question that uh, opioid phobia exists both within the healthcare community and within the general public as well. When I approach it with colleagues, I remind them that we are using it in a controlled environment with available equipment and safety measures in place um, so that if something's going to go wrong, remember we're trained to deal with this. This is what we do. Um, I encourage them if they're about to send someone home on an oral opioid to give the first dose in the emergency department, which I think from a pain point management point of view is a great idea because just as their IV stuff is wearing off, if you give them an oral dose about an hour or so before they're going to leave, it'll actually be kicked in for when they're heading home. Plus you had that 60 minutes of observation while they were waking up from their sedation or getting their cast finished and getting their education, et cetera, to prove to us that we're comfortable sending them home and that they're not collapsing or becoming apneic the second they take their first dose. From the parental point of view, I do a lot of preemptive counseling. So when I'm giving them prescription, I often see on their face the one eyebrow goes up or they look a little bit uncomfortable. And at that point, I'll launch into a small talk about how children do not get addicted to opioids when they are used for pain management. And that like all medications, I would expect the parents would keep this in a safe place away from their child's reach, whether it's a toddler or an adolescent or anyone in between. Now, if you've listened to Dr. Krakow's best case ever, you'll know why we haven't mentioned codeine yet. But if you haven't, Dr. Krakow, what are the dangers of using codeine in a patient like this? So, Anton, it's a great question. Codeine is an excellent drug for some kids if they metabolize it properly. Unfortunately, there are a number of kids who don't metabolize codeine properly. And for them, it's actually a fairly useless drug. More importantly, and very dangerously, there are some kids who are ultra-rapid metabolizers. And what that means is when they get the codeine, their body rapidly metabolizes it to morphine, and essentially they get a large, large surge of morphine in their body. And this has resulted in respiratory arrest and death. And there's a number of case reports in the literature of children receiving appropriate doses of codeine and dying from being ultra-rapid metabolizers. And we have no way of knowing who these kids are. And so my usual advice to folks if they're giving codeine is to stop giving codeine to kids. It's a dangerous drug. Health Canada does not recommend that it's used in kids under the age of 12. Uh, there are other options that are safer and more effective. Um, so really, there's no reason why codeine should be given to children, period. Between 2012 to now, um, essentially, to my knowledge, every pediatric hospital in Canada has removed codeine from their formulary. So we've made a, a the pediatric community has given a very loud message about codeine. There's a, two uh, reports in the literature that I think were really uh, moving and which really drove the point home for me. One was the case of Tariq and Rani Jameson, uh, which was actually, it was a Canadian story. It happened in Toronto. And this is actually probably the one case that pushed the Health Canada decision-making forward. Um, and this was a case of, um, of a healthy 30-something-year-old mom who was sent home after having had uh, delivery of a healthy baby, and she was prescribed codeine for post-delivery uh, pain. And she was taking two pills twice a day. 
and about a week or so into um, into her new baby's uh, life, um, she had a follow up with her primary care physician. She told them that the baby was a bit sleepy and not feeding so great. And they said, you know, keep at it. It's tough work being a new mom, you know, as we probably would all say. And uh, she actually dropped her codeine, incidentally, down to only two pills a day. So 60 milligrams of codeine in 24 hours. And uh, on day 11 or 13 of this, I think it was day 13 of this baby's life, um, he was found apneic in their home. Paramedics were called and he was unsuccessfully resuscitated. And so he died at home. When they examined this baby postmortem, he had seven to eight times the amount of codeine that would be therapeutically acceptable. Now remember, codeine is metabolized to morphine, so you'd measure the morphine as the metabolite. So he had seven to eight times the amount of this morphine metabolite in his blood. And remember, he never touched the drug. It was being transferred through the breast milk from the mother. So this gives you an idea. Ronnie, the mom, was later um, recognized to be an ultra-rapid metabolizer. So this was an absolutely tragic case that happened here in Canada that could have been avoided with the avoidance of the use of a drug that probably was questionable in terms of its action anyways, because codeine is not our best opioid that we had anyways. Let's drive home some key take-home points. First, never use codeine in kids. Why? Basically, because morphine has a much more predictable effect and so is safer and is better at controlling pain. The only exception to this might be the sickle cell child who's in crisis and who's always safely used codeine with good effect. For kids with severe belly pain or other conditions that you expect a prolonged pain period of hours in the ED, our experts recommend IV morphine at doses of 0.05 to 0.1 milligram per kilogram IV push, not in a mini bag, with frequent reassessments and titration to effect. And placing the child on an oxygen saturation monitor would be wise once you're getting into the second or third repeated doses. For patients who are suffering mild to moderate pain, Dr. Ali recommends a combination of acetaminophen and ibuprofen in the ED, although there's no good studies on this in kids yet. And if the parents are on the ball, the combo of acetaminophen and ibuprofen for outpatient management can be considered as well. If you predict that the patient will continue to have moderate or severe pain at discharge, then oral morphine at a dose of 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram Q4-6H, to that's 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram Q4-6H to of morphine, is a reasonable choice. Or if you practice in the States, then oxycodone acetaminophen suspension is another choice. So that's our section on painful conditions that you expect will last for hours or for days and what the best choices for pain control are. Next, we'll present a case in which a child requires a painful venipuncture and how best to minimize their pain and suffering. Case number two. A three-year-old girl is sent into your ED from one of your community pediatricians with a four-day history of fever maculopapular rash, swollen lips, and unilateral cervical adenopathy. Her urine shows 40 white blood cells per high-power field with no bacteria. Her ESR is 80, and her ALT is elevated. After consultation with a pediatrician on call, you decide together that this girl fulfills the criteria for Kawasaki disease, and the pediatrician asks you to place an IV in the ED so that IVIG can be given. You get a call from the nurse telling you that they're having a difficult time getting the IV. When you enter the room, the child looks terrified and miserable, and another attempt at placing the IV results in a scream so high-pitched and loud that you think your tympanic membranes have blown. Dr. Croco, which pain-minimizing techniques would you use in this case? There's the so-called brutane holding the child down. There's distraction techniques. There's EMLA. There's vapocoolant spray. Let's start with distraction techniques. What does the evidence tell us about which of these distraction techniques we should use to minimize IV placement pain or any other procedure in the ED for that matter? 
It's a great question. And I think we're lucky to have child life specialists in our emergency department who advocate for our children and make sure that we're maximizing uh, the experiences that they're having and minimizing their pain. One of the things that has been studied has actually been music therapy. Uh, and they actually did a really interesting randomized control trial, small, but a randomized control trial that was well-performed where they took two groups and one group getting an IV start were uh, distracted with music therapy and the other group got what I like to call just awkward silence. And lo and behold, the children who were distracted had a less of a pain experience during that IV start. And so I think even simple things like getting a parent to take out their iPhone, their own iPhone, and play something that they know the child likes as a distraction during an IV, if you don't have child life specialists and you don't have the, the tools to provide that yourself, this can be done by parents in the room, takes no time to do, costs no money, improves the experience of the child, improves the experience of the providers, uh, and decreases the, the time that it's going to take to, to get things started. So we're often using that. Um, when we have the chance, we do like to use topical um, creams to minimize the discomfort um, that happens from the IV start. Uh, there are times where we cannot do that. So I'm thinking of cases where children need to be resuscitated actively. I'm, I'm not going to wait a half an hour, 45 minutes for an IV start in that case. But by and large, and this is a good example, this child uh, that you've described, this child can wait a half an hour to have their IV started. And so using Amatop or Emla, I'm not tethered to one, it's whatever is available in your department, but some sort of topical cream that works on intact skin, I think is a great idea. Yeah, I would agree with Anthony. We tend to advocate for either Maxiline or Amatop, the Amethocaine, or for 4% Tetracaine products because they take 30 minutes. The recommendations for EMLA are actually 60 minutes. So that's great if you're sitting in a clinic waiting for an ambulatory experience. But in our emergency, because we're so desperate for time, that's our biggest resource that we're short on, that we've tended to drift towards um, and have adopted uh, Maxiline or Amatop in most Canadian peds emerges. No, I think. Let me, can I just clarify there? So Amatop is the trade name for Amethicane 4% gel. That's correct. And the trade name Maxiline or Ella Max, I believe is the other trade name, is liposomal lidocaine 4%. That's correct. And both are rapid acting. Both have been studied for children, and both um, the liposomal lidocaine and the amethocaine have um, ample evidence to suggest that they work equally well, if not better, than EMLA, which is the longer-acting original product. Okay. And what about uh, vapocoolant spray? That sort of seems to have instant pain relief. Is that something that you'd recommend? Vapocoolant spray is great if um, the access is going to be super fast. So if you can see a big, juicy vein and you're just about to go in and you don't have a lot of time, you can spray and use it, but it wears off in seconds. So I'm not sure in this scenario that we're talking about where it's going to be a tough poke that vapocoolant would necessarily be the way I would go. Personally, I've used vapocoolant spray in the setting of uh, lancing an abscess on the bottom of a foot. That's my favorite place to use it because uh, you can avoid a full procedural sedation if you just spray and lance, but you have seconds to do it before it wears off. There's this new thing to Canada called a J-tip with buffered lidocaine. Can you just tell us a little bit about this J-tip thing that apparently has had some use in the U.S. and is just starting to be used in Canada? Sure. This J-tip device, I think it goes by the name of Zingo um, in the States. It's using compressed carbon dioxide for drug delivery um, into subcutaneous tissues. So it takes lidocaine and it forces it under the skin. So there's one small study of about 59 kids um, that compared it to EMLA. And it said that it was better than EMLA. Mind you, EMLA wasn't on for a full 60 minutes in a lot of those children. So it's a little bit questionable as to whether they optimize the EMLA application in that little study. There's another re- big one, a 600 patient study that was done, well-designed study that was done in the U.S., but they compared this J-tip to a sham J-tip. So they actually compared it to no treatment and showed that it was better than no treatment. But you know, I don't think that's a big leap to say that using any pain treatment is better than no pain treatment. So it's it's compelling, it's interesting, it's fast, it's supposed to be relatively painless to administer. So I'll be interested to see how this evolves over the coming years. And do you have stocks in any of these things? Absolutely no financial investment in any of the drugs or products we're talking about. Okay. Now, what if you need to place an IV in a four-month-old? Would you make any other recommendations beyond what we've discussed in terms of pain control? 
That is a very common scenario. So just last week, um, you know, you have a seven-day-old who needs a jaundice workup or a two-month-old who needs a partial septic workup. And here we are with a very sad child, a very stressed-out family. So if that baby is fortunate enough to still be breastfeeding, um, there's no question there's good Cochrane systematic review data to support breastfeeding as a way to relieve pain for these children. So, of course, I'd use everything we've already described, creams, um, distraction, etc., but if if you are able to have the mom breastfeed the baby while the while you're obtaining vascular access, they have significantly less pain. Um, it involves really great buy-in from the nursing staff because they have to be comfortable putting an IV in a non-traditional lay the child down on the bed kind of position, but it absolutely works. And uh, oral sucrose is another great one, which we have, again, close to 60, 70 articles now backing this up to say that in infants, definitely less than three months of age, that two mils of sucrose um, in about 22% concentration or more two minutes before the procedure on the anterior tongue will reduce their pain. So easy, so cheap. Yeah, I'm using that all the time now for the LPs that I'm doing in my neonates when I'm doing a full septic workup. And I can tell you, since we've started initiating, you know, using sucrose pretty much regularly for painful procedures in infants, it's made a difference for me in the type of environment that I'm working in when I'm putting an LP in, which even sort of a few years now, I've got a few gray hairs and a few missing hairs. I've been doing this for a little while. I, you know, I still get a little anxious when I'm sticking a needle in the back of an infant. And, you know, to have them not moving around, making my job a little bit easier and it costs next to nothing. Like this is not like a, a $2,000 medication. This is sucrose in a little vial. Like the, this is all benefit and no harm. Absolutely. You can buy it commercially made in two mil droppers. And if you don't have access to that, you can just take your D50, dilute it with sterile water and you have D25 and you're good to go. Yeah. Wow. There's yeah. a pearl. Yeah. The other thing that I know that um, just came out as a study maybe three or four months ago was the use of infant warmers uh, in infants undergoing vaccination who are getting sucrose. And they very small study, but it opens the door to another idea that, again, is low cost, you know, but potentially uh, has a significant impact. And the idea was, along with giving sucrose, is to actually have ch children in a warm environment when they're getting a painful procedure and their pain experience was uh, measured at being less. And now a small study and it opens the door, but it just again reminds us that the more that we can do to improve the comfort of these children, even with low-tech, low-cost, non-pharmacologic means, can make our job and their experience much better. Absolutely. And that reminds me of Dr. Sarah Curtis's um, study on sucrose and pacifier use in the emergency department that she published a few years back, which showed that non-nutritive sucking. So using a pacifier in and of itself, yeah, when you combine it with sucrose, actually potentiated the effect as well. So if they're not breastfeeding, give them the sucrose. And if they take a pacifier, stick a little pacifier in their mouth, it appears to augment the effects of, this, of the sucrose. Well, okay. So all these distraction techniques, there's music that you can just take from anyone's iPhone who's in the room. There's breastfeeding, there's warming the baby, there's sucrose, there's pacifiers. I mean, you've got a lot of choices here. Really, I mean, you have no excuse just to go in there and, and poke the child without using at least one or a combination of these techniques. If you want to Let's drive home the key points for minimizing pain and anxiety when it comes to venipuncture in kids. First, there are five low-cost, easy-to-employ distraction techniques that have been shown in the literature to significantly improve pain scores. Number one, music therapy. Simply ask the parent to play the child their favorite music on their mobile device prior to the poke. Number two, if they're breastfed babies, ask mom to breastfeed. Simple. Number three, give the patient oral sucrose that comes in a 2cc vial or dilute D50 to D25W and give two cc's of that. And you can augment the effects of the sucrose by using number four, which is non-nutritive sucking with a pacifier. And finally, number five, providing a warm environment with simply a blanket or a warmer machine can help to minimize pain in these kids. So once you've thrown in a distraction technique or two or three, reach for one of the topical analgesic products. Your best choices are one of three. 
First, there's liposomal lidocaine 4% gel. The trade name for that is Maxaline. Second is amethicane 4% gel, which is the trade name Amatop. And another best choice is the JTIP with buffered lidocaine. The trade name for that is Zingo. Now, Emla probably isn't a great choice because it takes about an hour to reach maximal effect. And Vapocoolin spray should really only be used for procedures that you know will take a few seconds, like lancing an abscess, for example. Next, Dr. Ali and Dr. Krakow will discuss some communication pearls to minimize anxiety around difficult procedures and the role of intranasal medications for managing pediatric pain and anxiety. On to case number three. A six-year-old girl comes in after falling off her bicycle with a straddle injury. Her mother reports that she saw blood in the underwear. The child refuses to disrobe despite your reassurance. So what communication techniques would you recommend to our listeners that they use to relieve the anxiety in this child? And what would you actually say to this child? This is a really tough one, Anton. It could very well be about needing reassurance and security. And some of it is likely about pain as well. But uh, it depends on the extent of the injury, the pain piece. So I suggest the parent absolutely has to be in the room. I would never examine such a patient without the parent present. I reassure the child in a reasonable way. So I wouldn't say, well, if you say, you know, I'm going to stop the second you tell me to, because sometimes we may actually find something that needs to be addressed and we can't stop it. I'll tell them we can take a break if it's too much. So you want to empower this child to have control over what is a very sensitive exam. A couple of strategies that I'll throw into the mix. I'm uh, imposing six foot four for the listeners that don't know what I look like. And, you know, so to have a stranger who's standing over you saying, okay, now I got to look at your genitals. You know, I don't think there's anybody who would be too keen on that experience. And so first and foremost, I'd lower myself just physically to eye level or below eye level of the child when I'm communicating to them. And then one of the strategies that I use is to say, is to explain what we need to do. This is a six-year-old. And then to give the child a choice. I'm not giving them the choice of, can we look? Because we kind of need to look. You're bleeding down there. This is something that we, we need to do and explain that. But to give the child a choice that you can live with. And one of the things that I'll often say is, you know, I have to have a look down there because I understand you're bleeding and that's, you know, we have to make you better. Would you rather for me to have a look with you lying on the bed or sitting on mom's lap? It's empowering for the child. Absolutely. Okay. If you twist this scenario, just change it a little bit and say that um, if they're extremely distressed or there's the possible sexual abuse scenario, which is often the scenario in which we're looking to do this genital exam, uh, then there's the fear of so-called secondary trauma. And so in speaking to our child protection teams, then I think that's where the idea of using procedural sedation becomes really important. Okay. Putting uh, the abuse issue to the side for a moment, let's say we have this child that clearly has a straddle injury. What treatment would you use to minimize the pain beyond all the communication things that we just talked about? Would you use ice, intranasal midazolam, there's intranasal ketamine, the new kid on the block for sedation is nitric oxide in the emergency department I've, I've, I've heard is being used. You've got all these options. Uh, what would you recommend? So I think it's good to have in your back pocket a, a list of things that you're comfortable using in kids, whether that's uh, midazolam, which can be given a number of different ways, uh, intranasal buccal mucosa, IVIM. It's an okay anxiolytic. I say okay because there's a number of kids that do have um, the opposite reaction to midazolam and just become more and more agitated. Uh, and so it's for me, it's not my go-to medication anymore for that. The vast majority of them, vast majority, do not have severe pain issues. They have severe anxiety and distress issues. But if they did have significant bruising or swelling in the perineal area, I really like the idea of using um, um, using um, ice. Using an ice pack wrapped in a damp towel will deliver a good transfer of cold energy and reduce the risk of, of frostbite type injury from, uh, from the ice pack itself, especially in such a tender area. What about intranasal ketamine or nitrous oxide? Just to talk about intranasal ketamine a little bit, it is the newest kit on the block. We're using it um, now as a new indication for trauma, for pain management. There's two studies, the Pitchfork study that just came out two or three months ago and another study out of Australia from the Yemen group, and both of them were used for MSK injury. So there's some evidence to suggest intranasal ketamine works similarly to intranasal 
fentanyl, but I've not seen anything to use it for pain management in this type of setting. But if you're going to use ketamine uh, for a procedure of this type, I would personally have a little bit of hesitation because ketamine is known to have um, the effects of having confusion and um, altered perceptions. And again, in the context of doing a GU exam in a traumatized child, I'm not sure that um, what you want is altered perceptions. Getting back to the abuse scenario, I avoid ketamine. Mm, That's a good point. Nitrous oxide is, um, in my experience, a great adjuvant to use for very brief procedures. So for instance, when I've had a child in the ambulance bay that's going to have to wait two and a half hours to get a bed, and I know there's a popped out patella, dislocated patella, we've done the nitrous oxide and popped it back in in the ambulance bay on occasion. I don't recommend this as a general treatment uh, approach in terms of doing things in the ambulance bay, but sometimes you have to do what you have to do. I've definitely used it for children who are very anxious about getting an IV, So we've used it uh, um, in that scenario, but I can't say that I've ever used it as the single agent for any procedures. I sort of see managing pain and anxiety sort of like playing cards or playing poker. You're better off having more cards in your hand. Not all the cards are going to be great. You're not going to be able to use all the cards all the time. You know, your two of diamonds, it's kind of a terrible card, but it's better to have it in your hand than not. And I think something like nitrous oxide that may have very limited usefulness, it's better to know about it and be able to use it. So the one or two times that you can use it, you do, uh, than not have it in your hand of, of cards that you can play. So true. And so many things in, in medicine, having multiple options and being very familiar with those multiple options, and you can tailor those to the patient that's in front of you. A 10-year-old boy comes in after a foosh in the playground. He appears very anxious when you examine him. His x-ray shows a distal radius fracture that requires reduction. So let's say you've decided to do procedural sedation for this kitty, and the child has not received any analgesics at home or at triage. To bridge the gap until the sedation starts, what analgesics would you recommend? If we can get immediate intravascular access, I would go with IV morphine because similar to what our discussions around appendicitis, um, his arm is broke, it hurts, it's sore, and it's going to be a couple of hours till it's fully managed. So why don't we give something that will last? If there's any delay in vascular access, then intranasal fentanyl to me strikes me as, as an ec- excellent option at this point in time. And yeah. I've done that just two weeks ago, I had a child with a, f- a fractured clavicle who was beside himself, a couple of squirts in the nose, and off he went to x-ray came back and actually did not want any intravenous medications and we switched him over to oral and were able to get him home on oral medications. So for kids either that come in without an IV that I know I'm going to need an IV and it's going to take some time or kids that just have something that's very short-lived pain experience, um, I'm, I'm a fan of the intranasal fentanyl. I think there was actually a recent systematic review looking at this. Indeed. That systematic review you're talking about um, included, it was a very small one, but very recently published, included a small number of studies that showed that uh, intranasal fentanyl is very likely equivalent to IV morphine by about 10 to 15 minutes of time and moving forward from there. So at the 10 minute, 20 minute, 30, 60 minute mark, they're comparable. But within those first 10 minutes, and not surprisingly, intravenous morphine kicks in before an intranasally delivered drug. Yeah. So I think for those kids that don't have an IV, intranasal may be a faster way to get the medication in and start the clock. And if they do have an IV, then I don't see why we'd be using intranasal medication. Agreed. Yeah. And in terms of the the dosage, what's the general rule of thumb with the dosage of fentanyl? Yeah, intranasal drugs generally about a half to a third availability of the intravenous. So if you double the dose, that's probably a safe way to start. Dr. Krakow is now going to give us three practical points when it comes to using intranasal fentanyl. For those of you who may not have used a lot of intranasal fentanyl in your patients, from a practical standpoint, there's probably three things that's uh, worth knowing. First is the dose that were used in the studies were between one and one and a half micrograms per kilogram. The second is if the volume that you're having to administer is more than 0.3 mils, you may want to split the dose uh, and do half in each nair. The third point is if you've got a child who's completely congested and all plugged up, uh, there's probably not a lot of point putting the medication in the nose because it's just not going to get absorbed uh, if the mucosa are all covered in uh, mucus. Absolutely, Anthony. And for ketamine, if people are thinking about using intranasal ketamine, the current study doses are one milligram per kilogram for the ketamine. Let's drive home some key points 
for short-term analgesics and anxiolytics. Key concept. Often kids will have a huge amount of anxiety which contributes to and clouds our assessment of their pain, so the anxiety needs to be addressed. Good communication is so important to prevent any further psychological trauma. Give the child choices to empower them and minimize anxiety. With the parent in the room, tell the child that they can take a break if it's too much for them. Ask them if they'd like to sit in the parent's lap or lie down on the stretcher. Give them choices. Now, for short-term pain management or a bridge to sedation, there's several analgesic and anxiolytic options. And you should be familiar with all of them so that you can have more options for particular clinical situations. Let's talk intranasal medications. The advantages of intranasal medications delivered by Atomizer are the rapid onset, ease of delivery, painless administration, and high bioavailability. The general rule of thumb for dosing is to use twice the IV dose. Sometimes you'll need more than this, but this is a good guide to start with. Use the most concentrated available formulation and don't dilute the drug. Some experts recommend co-administering oral pain medication at the same time so that when the intranasal medication wears off, the oral medication kicks in and takes over. If you need a reversal agent for fentanyl, naloxone can be given intranasally as well. Now, intranasal midazolam is an effective anxiolytic in the vast majority of kids. However, a small but significant percentage of kids will react with more anxiety. So midazolam sometimes isn't the greatest choice. Intranasal fentanyl at 1 to 1.5 micrograms per kilogram has equivalent analgesic effects to IV morphine based on a recent systematic review. So if a child doesn't have an IV in already, intranasal fentanyl is a great choice to bridge the gap until an IV can be placed or even avoid requiring an IV in the first place. Remember that if the volume of fentanyl is more than 0.3 milliliters, then it's best to split the dose in half, give one half in one nair and the other half in the other. And if the nose is packed with boogers, don't use intranasal medications. Intranasal ketamine at one milligram per kilogram has been shown for MSK injury to be equivalent to intranasal fentanyl in the pitchfork study, which we'll have on the website. But remember that ketamine can cause nightmares and confusion, so you'd best avoid it in kids who appear especially anxious or in particular situations like genital exams or if you suspect abuse. Nitric oxide can also be used for short-term analgesia and has been used in more than 60 trials in kids. It's an anxiolytic, analgesic, and amnesic, with an onset of around 5 minutes and a recovery between 5 and 15 minutes. You'll be surprised to hear that it's been shown to be comparable to IV ketamine for fracture reductions, and it has a pretty good safety profile as well. Next, we're going to talk about the wonders of LET. A three-year-old boy has fallen while reenacting a Superman scene. And now he has a simple laceration on his forehead. How can you minimize pain and emotional trauma for this kid that we almost never see in the emergency department? Probably the number one thing that you can do for these kids is to get some sort of uh, topical analgesic on that laceration as early as possible in their visit. Um, and we use a lot of let gel, uh, lidocaine, epinephrine, tetracaine, or if you're from somewhere else, you may call it lat gel, lidocaine, adrenaline, tetracaine. So let me get this straight. You're going to put on let even in a patient that you're going to be using skin adhesive where all you need to do is put a little bit of skin adhesive on and they're ready to go. So I can tell you, Anton, up until a year or two ago, if I knew you were going to be just needing a little bit of tissue adhesive, I didn't put let gel on because I didn't think it really was necessary. Uh, and then I really realized that every child that I put tissue adhesive on um, seems to really not enjoy that experience. It's a painful experience to get uh, tissue adhesive. And there was a study that came out that actually looked at the pain response for children that were getting tissue adhesive uh, when they received let gel versus when they did not. And not surprisingly, the kids that had uh, let gel applied had a much better pain experience than those that did not. And so now it's a routine for me that any child that comes in with a laceration gets let gel on it, whether or not it's something that's going to be sutured, glued, or steri-stripped, we put it on there. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the adult study too to come out because in, in the adult emerges, we just slam in injectable lidocaine right into the laceration and every single patient finds it very painful. And to this day, I can't figure out why we don't put let on every patient in the emergency department who has a laceration. 
That's what I do in my practice. Any pain researchers out there who need a new study, let before any laceration for patients of all ages would be a great one. You could call it the lack equals let study. Uh, And I think sometimes we're far kinder with kids than we are with adults. Our child life specialists have been big proponents of using let gel and they'll be the ones that actually come to us. As that skin adhesive is solidifying, if there's any of it that actually gets under the skin, it's very painful. And it's an exothermic reaction as well. So part of it is also the anxiety if they don't understand that it's going to get warm. So again, going back to our non-pharmacologic interventions, tell the child it's going to feel a little bit warm when the glue sets and do your darndest to keep it out of the laceration. The glue does not belong. You're not filling a cut. You're bringing together the two sides of a cut. It seems very basic, but sometimes we forget that in all the busyness of our day. The other thing, Anthony, is going back full circle to the beginning of our conversation that we have, we're having here with Anton is nurse initiative pain protocols. So at Stollery now, we have a nurse-initiated protocol for LET gel. So when they're seen by the triage nurse, it's applied. So when they get into the room, which typically there's at least a 30 to 40 minute delay by the time they've gotten into room for us, the LET gel is already on and we can uh, glue or suture as we need. Um, when I've actually ended up having to suture because it was a little bit deeper or gapier than we might have thought, um, I would say this is anecdotally on my own experience, about 95% of the laceration is fully anesthetized with the let. So when I take that 30 gauge needle with the warmed and buffered lidocaine and start injecting it, they don't feel the needle going in except maybe one spot where they say, ow, and that's about it. Don't forget to visit emergencymedicinecases.com to check out the show notes for this episode to reinforce your learning. And while you're at it, you can check out Dr. Howard Oven's new Waiting to be Seen blog, an ED administrative look at some issues that affect your practice as well as the few weeks old free Emergency Medicine Cases Digest Volume 1 on MSK and Trauma. That's the ebook. This is sure to be a fun, interactive digital learning experience for you. So until next time, I'll leave you with the quote of the month. This one's from the Dalai Lama. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional.